When traders tell us how to make Thinkorswim even better, we listen. They asked for a version they could access anywhere, no download necessary. We heard them. And when they asked to execute a preset trade strategy in seconds, we said absolutely. Feedback like this inspired us to build Thinkorswim Web, and it continues to push us. So our entire suite of platforms never stops getting better. Because platforms this innovative aren't just made for traders, they're made by them. Thinkorswim Trading, from TD Ameritrade. Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. Rachel, I'm gearing up for the playoffs. I'm pretty stoked. We're recording this on a Tuesday morning. How are you doing? Well, you know, I'm a little under the weather, and I'm sure that my voice kind of gives that away, so we're just going to go ahead and apologize in advance for that. How about you? Yeah, I've been sick over the last little bit, and then you throw in a crazy weekend where I lost my voice, and, and we weren't able to record on Sunday or Monday when we really wanted to, so we're recording this on a Tuesday morning. My voice is a little bit shot, but I, th- I think it sounds a little bit better than yours. I think that's fair to say at this point. I don't know. I feel like between like puck talks and everything else this weekend, my voice definitely sounds worse than yours. <laughs> I mean, my voice in general just has a terrible tone to it, so I feel like we're about even this week. I'd say that's fair, but... Let's get into the topic du jour. What are we going to be talking about today, Rachel? We're going to hit on um, how playoff teams prep for their upcoming series. We'll do a little bit of a playoff preview in terms of what we think might be the most interesting series of the first round. And then, as always, we got our mailbag. Beautiful. All righty. So if we're a team heading into the playoffs, if we have a key matchup with our opponent, What are we doing as a team, I guess, behind the scenes to kind of prepare for that matchup? One of the things a team will do is they'll do a deep statistical dive into their games against the team that they're playing from that season. So if you're Carolina Washington and you're either of those teams or you're Vegas San Jose, you're doing a deep dive into the games that you've played against your opponent from that year because realistically, there's so much change in the roster from season to season that you can really only look at the statistics from this year. So you're going to look at things like ice time for players, whether it's on the opponent or your team, um, the matchup. So who was playing against two, who was matched up against two and what was successful. So whether you have a, a D pairing or a certain player that was matched up and whether or not it was successful, you're going to look at line combinations and D pairings that worked and vice versa. Um, And one of the things you really want to look at is who had the most success versus who. So you want to try and get that edge in a matchup. And some of the statistics that will come up will be things like expected goals, whether it's um, on the even strength or on the PP, the PK, um, where the chances were coming from and who was generating the chances, whether it's for and against. So you want to look at the trends that sort of have to do with those things, because those are going to be the most telling in terms of how you prep for that. So you want to talk about um, your line matching. And I know you've got an article coming out and you've talked at nauseum about line matching. So when you're looking at prepping and you're looking at lineups, 
what's something that you would uh, you would look at there? I think from a statistical perspective, one of the interesting things with line matching is that throughout the course of a full season, throughout 82 games, there's a lot of talk about how the competition effects tend to wash out a little bit. And that isn't to say that competition doesn't matter. It's just to say that throughout the course of an entire season, there's a lot more variance in the players that you play versus the players you play with, there's a lot less variance. You tend to play with very similar line mates. You tend to play a lot different competition. You might face some first liners, some second liners, some third liners, some fourth liners. In the playoffs, matchups tend to be a much bigger deal. And I feel like this is one of the factors of competition is that across a large sample, the competition effects tend to wash out a little bit, but in a small sample, it can have a huge effect. So let's say you're matched up against a McDavid, or McDavid's obvious on it in the playoffs because Edmonton is one of the most... We don't need to get into that. Who is a team They're going to win the draft lottery tonight. Like, I just they have are. this feeling. They're but... going to get Jack Hughes, Connor McDavid. It's, it's going to be beautiful and terrible. I want Vancouver to win the lottery because I want them to have both the Hughes brothers, but we can talk about that a different day. <laughs> I want Colorado to win it because I love chaos, but... I I think one of the interesting things is that if you're trying to match up against a top line, let's say Sidney Crosby, you're probably going to be matched up against him for the majority of the game. You're probably going to be playing 60, maybe even 70% of your shifts against him. That's going to have a huge impact on your results. So a stats nerd like me who likes to go look at players on ice results and go, oh, the competition effects aren't really that important. Well, in an individual matchup like that, they they really are. So you need to make sure that you're not just looking at someone's results in very sheltered minutes. Because if a player is going up against third and fourth lines with consistency, if you try to hard match him to one of the best lines in hockey, all of a sudden he's not going to have those same kind of results. So you need to make sure that you're trying your best to account for competition when you're looking at which players in your lineup are the best at matching up against top players. Yeah, and I think one of the things that changes from the regular season to the playoffs is the hard matching. You get more of a Claude Julian, Bruce Brujo style than you would, let's say, a coach that kind of just runs his lines out. Unless you're John Cooper in Tampa Bay and you could just roll four lines and be totally comfortable. I think you're totally right in the fact that the line matching and the sort of very strict matchups come into play in the playoffs. And so you're going to have a lot bigger sample in terms of this player playing against this player and is it going to work and that leads into adjustments so after every game I mean you should be providing a report to your coaching staff in terms of expected goals and who played well and the matchups and what was successful and different trends so that your coaches have everything and it needs to be understandable but one of the things that you want to put in there is prep for different situations so you need to provide adjustment suggestions or just different ways of looking at things because you always want to be evaluating after every game as sort of what worked and what didn't and okay if we go with this adjustment here are the numbers behind it and if we go with this adjustment here are the numbers behind that or here is a potential as to why this could work in the form of an explanation um so when it comes to adjustments I think that the statistical side of it is is very important. I have a philosophical question for you when it comes to line matching. Let's say hypothetically that everything in your report and your numbers indicates that your third line center would be a good matchup for the other team's top line center. You feel like that's the best way to nullify them defensively and that that allows your top six to go out against some sheltered competition and really take advantage of the team offensively. I've always felt that when teams do that, even though it can work really well, 
often it results in your star players maybe not getting enough minutes because you're matching up to what the other team's doing. They're putting their star player, Sidney Crosby, on the ice all the time. You counter by putting your third-line center on the ice all the time. And then all of a sudden, a Vladimir Tarasenko, and Alex Ovechkin at the end of the night only has 13 or 14 minutes. And I feel like that can't happen in a playoff series. How do you account for the fact that maybe you want to get a specific matchup, but you also want your best players to get as many minutes as possible? I think that's a it's a good question, and I think it's about finding a balance. Do you want your best defensive center probably shutting down another line? Well, absolutely, but at the end of the day, you need to have the players on the ice that are going to give you the best chance to win. So it's sort of an opportunity cost because essentially how much bigger is the difference? How much more are you getting from your third-line center and shutdown role than you would be from hard-matching your second-line center or getting your second-line center that ice time? Like, if if the discrepancy is not that much, then I would say you probably can go half and half. You don't have to necessarily hard-match. You can have either one of those lines out. But if the numbers are incredibly in favor of the third-line center, then I would say you'd probably want a hard-match in all the defensive and neutral zone faceoffs, for sure. And then you would probably put that second or first line out in, for an offensive zone draw because then at that point you're starting in the offensive zone. You want to give your star players who are in the top six that opportunity. I think it's definitely a balance. Um, but when you're kind of getting to the end of the game, it depends on situations as well if you're down a goal you have your star players out and you don't even think twice about getting scored on because if you don't score then you don't win and it's completely pointless but if you're holding a lead let's say you've got a one goal lead you've got that one goal lead and if the numbers are in favor of the third line center being able to shut it down that's sort of when you go okay I have to go against and Maybe this player gets this extra shift or these two extra shifts, but if it's going to win me the game, that's when you do it. So I think it's all about situations in terms of are you down, are you up, who's going, who's not. Yeah, the context is always key, or I was even thinking in the second period, if you're up by two goals, maybe you're more comfortable hard matching that defensive center, or let's say you're losing by two or three goals. Even early on, if you're down two or three goals in the first period, you can't be hard matching your defensive player if you need goals to get back in that game. So maybe all of a sudden you're playing your Ovechkin or your Tarasenko a lot more than you otherwise would. And then in a game when you're winning by a couple goals, you have that defensive center going out in a few more shifts than you normally would. Context is always key when we're looking at these things. Oh, absolutely. And I think that goes to the adjustment factor. And can you make that in-game adjustment? Who's going and who's not going? And I think we'll get to Joel Quenville later, but one of the things he's very good at is his bench management. And it's abundantly clear that he always has a feel of who's going and who's not going. And so you can almost base your matchups on that. Because if your second line center is really going and they're generating and they're also good in their own end and your third line center is a car wreck for whatever reason, then you're not going to hard match it against a line that's got Bergeron, Marshawn, Posternak or Stamkos, Kucherov on it. That just wouldn't be smart. So I think it's all about bench management. So we've talked a little bit about the statistics. Now let's talk about the video. When we're talking about whether it's a video coach or just a head coach in general, looking at video, looking at tactics and trying to figure out, hmm, what are we going to do in this series? How much goes into the work before the game and how much of it actually impacts the play on the ice? When it comes to video, you have more prepped for the playoffs just because you have more to pick from. So I would say in your video, you 
focus on the PPPK because we've seen that the special teams battle in a playoff series could very well decide the playoff series. If your PK is good and your PP is good, or if your PK is horrible and your PP is also horrible, you're probably not winning that series. So when you're looking at video prep, specifically with your power play, it needs to be what's been working. So it's not what worked over the season. What have you done for me lately? So what's been working, what hasn't been working? And that means combinations, plays, entries, everything. So you need to look at that. Then you, on the flip side of it, when you're looking at um, defending, what are trends and tendencies of certain players on the other team and what are you doing to combat that? So when you look at Tampa Bay, for example, they love to use the bumper spot. Okay, well, what is Columbus going to do to combat that? And I know Allison Lucan has something coming out discussing this because if Columbus has a hope in hell of beating Tampa Bay, they need Bobrovsky and they need to shut down that Tampa PP. So when you're looking at at least limit its effectiveness because they're going to get some goals. Oh, absolutely. But they need to maybe not be giving up two goals a game, essentially. But you're looking at the trends and tendencies of the certain superstar players. And then as far as the power play is concerned, you want to look at the goaltending. So I know one of the things that teams do is they'll look at the goaltender that they're most likely going to be playing, and they'll look at his weaknesses and his tendencies. So on a certain play, what does he like to do? If the pass goes here, does he look first and then go, or does he just commit and go? Or... On a screen, does he look above the player? Does he look to the left, to the right? All of these things can help determine where you're shooting the puck, where you're going to put the puck, because if you know a goaltender's weakness or a tendency, it becomes way easier to build something to capitalize on that. So I know last year there was talk about um, Vasilevsky and shooting to the blocker side. Now, He happens to be good in all areas, but I know as teams sort of looked at him throughout the playoffs and even throughout last season, his blocker side was an area of weakness relative to the rest. So when you're looking at that, you want to look at shooting there. Um, And you also want to look at key areas to attack. So you want to look at, as far as the PP is concerned, where are teams weak and where can you capitalize? And where the PK is concerned, you want to look at where on their zone entry can I stop them where are they at their weakest if they turn their back who is more likely to give up the puck so you kind of want to be able to force the puck to that area and the video will show you that they'll be able to say hey look this player x has the puck here he turns his back that's when we have to go because we're more likely to get a fumbled puck or a loose puck recovery so I think the video is more of a visual tool for the players whereas the statistical side is more for the coaching staff And it's interesting when it comes to the player's perspective and using video to try to help you get a game plan on a goaltender or maybe a specific way you can beat a defense or or make maybe a backdoor pass when you're not expecting it. These all feel like things that might be able to alter the goaltender's save percentage a little bit. And I know that when we talk about goaltending or save percentage, we always say, hey, goaltending is voodoo. And, you know, you can't predict goaltending in small samples. There's going to be a crazy high variance. Maybe a goaltender has an incredible series save percentage-wise. Maybe he has a terrible series save percentage-wise. In the long run, like we're talking over 100, maybe 200 games, 
goaltender save percentage is going to regress to their talent level. But in a small sample like this, you know, in a six, seven game series, heck, in a one game scenario where you need a goal to help get you back in a game, I feel like these little tweaks, these little shooting blocker side instead of going glove side, you know, passing to the left side of the defense instead of the right side of the defense, going from behind the net because you feel like you can turn around their defenders and they're not as mobile on their edges. These are subtle little things that might not show up across larger samples because you can tactically adjust for them and then prevent it from happening in the future. But in a small sample where you can catch someone off guard, I feel like these are things that can affect the shooting percentage, affect the save percentage in a series. And statistically, we don't like talking about that because we tend to say, hey, you know, shots, chances, that's what's repeatable. Shooting percentage and save percentage, there's way too much variance when it comes to that. But you definitely can impact it with the subtle decisions you make in small samples like that. Absolutely. And I think you brought up a good point in the fact that goaltending is the ultimate equalizer in a series. Your team could be playing terrible, but if your goaltender decides to throw up a 982, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to lose that series. That's the Marc-Andre Fleury, basically, of last year. Exactly. And and even if you look at Quick, like he was 945 or 950, and most of the time you're winning that series. So I think that the goaltending can't be overlooked, and there are some goaltenders that have the capability to steal a series. You look at Fleury, you look at Sergei Bobrovsky, um, Freddie Anderson has that capability, it's just one of those things, and if you can find that small tendency that you can capitalize on, then you're potentially looking at a, a pretty large advantage because it's very difficult once you get in a goaltender's head for them to adjust quickly. So let's say, hypothetically, a team is doing something in a playoff series that's working incredibly well, whether it's a well-structured breakout, or their forecheck is just eating you alive, or maybe the Vegas swarm in the neutral zone is disrupting all your space and you can't seem to gain any space off the rush. How do you tactically adjust throughout the course of a series? Because I was talking to Justin Bourne about this, and it's tricky because in small samples, it's tough to know, hmm, like, is that really something that was working well, or is maybe they just caught us off guard that, that first or second time, and it's something that we'll be ready for the next time? Or is this something that we really need to tactically adjust for and get a big game plan going into Game 3 for it? How quickly do coaches kind of adapt their strategies, adapt their tactics in a series, and how much does it impact the play? I think that you'll find some coaches that are very quick to adapt and then you'll find other coaches that are going to say, you know what, we're going to stick to what we're doing. It's worked for us and they're just, they're getting lucky type of thing. My big thing is patterns. So if you notice that it is continually successful, then it's probably something you need to look into. But if it's just a one-off or two-off fluke play over the course of a game, then realistically, that's not really something that you can adjust for. So... Let's say you notice that a team has adjusted their breakout or you have the Vegas Swarm. Well, you you would notice over the course of a game that that's a pattern. So then you would go back, and this goes to the video prep. You'd go back, you'd look at the tape, and you would say, okay, this is what they were doing, and you'd break it down. You'd look at where your players are, and you'd almost remove them and say, okay, if we wanted to combat this, where do our players need to be? And the thing about the playoffs is it's a game of mistakes, essentially. It's very randomized. It's it's puck luck, too. So you need to be able to be in a position where you're forcing the players on the ice to use their hockey IQ and to, to think on their feet. Because if they're just going on autopilot, doing their breakout or doing their neutral zone swarm or their forecheck, 
they don't really have to think. But if you get them thinking because you've moved a player or you're attacking earlier or maybe attacking later, they now have to think. And the more you get a player thinking, the more likely they are to make a mistake. Are there any coaches in the NHL that you can think of who are really good at these on-the-fly adjustments? Because I feel like it's something that's difficult in the NHL because systems are so entrenched throughout the course of the season. You know, this is the way we're running it. This is the right way to play. It's going to work now. It's going to work in the playoffs. But then all of a sudden, if you change something in the middle of a series, it's really hard for a coach to adapt to that. I'm wondering which coaches in the NHL you think are are really good at that, especially in a seven-game playoff series. I think you're going to... It's more of the new school type of thinking that will get you that success. I would would not be shocked to see John Cooper do something if Columbus has something ready for them. I would not be shocked, um, and he's not coaching in the playoffs, but Joel Quenville seems to be very good not only at bench management, but just in-game adjustments. He's got a really good feel for sort of what's going on. I've noticed over the past few years that Bill Peters is also good at this. So I'm interested to see how the Calgary-Colorado series plays out because I think Calgary does have that distinct edge. But the fact that goaltending is also voodoo where Calgary is concerned, and I'm interested to see sort of how Bill Peters does manage his bench and his in-game adjustments because when you have guys like Mike Babcock, let's say, who just refuse to change in-game, and maybe that's to their credit as well, because sometimes sticking with a plan works. Um, But I think a guy like Peter DeBoer is probably the hybrid there, where he doesn't jump to adjustments, like they're well thought out, and he makes sure that he sees the pattern first, because you don't want to go too much the other way. But I would say that you're probably likely to see a Bill Peters or a John Cooper adjustment. And we're going to try to actively avoid talking about Leafs Bruins because we're both from Toronto and we don't want to make this a Leafs podcast. We want it to be an NHL podcast. It's also the most covered series. Like, There's nothing that we're going to say that hasn't already been said. But with that being said, I just wanted to quickly say that I thought Bruce Cassidy did an excellent job last year of making some tactical adjustments that really helped his team, whether it was at 5-on-5 or it was on the penalty kill or power play. There were some things that he did in-game that really helped tilt the series his way, so that's definitely something to keep an eye on this year. Well, yeah, he, I think it was, he adjusted how they forechecked. Like, he changed their aggressiveness depending on who the pairing was. Basically forced it all on the left side of Toronto's defense, forced them to go to their right side defenseman. Exactly. So, since we're talking about individual teams now in the playoffs, how about we transition to our kind of mini playoff preview? We're not going to go through every single series because I don't think a lot of people care about the Calgary-Colorado series. I don't think the Nashville-Dallas series has drawn too much attention. But what's a series that you think is really interesting and you just want to dive into for a couple minutes here? Carolina, Washington. Hey, the storm surge, which we unfortunately will not see in the playoffs. I honestly hope that they do it just to surprise everyone. One, because it would make so many people very mad, but then it would also be very entertaining. So they're kind of polar opposites when it comes to Carolina's ability to control play at five on five. Their shooting percentage has never been that hot. Their save percentage has never been that hot but they just have a way of controlling the game at 5-on-5 five five when it comes to shots and chances. Washington tends to get outshot and outchanced at 5-on-5, five five, but they have all that shooting talent. They have Braden Holtby, who, when he's on top of his game, is a top-five goaltender in the NHL. And then they have an elite power play in Washington, whereas Carolina's power play tends to struggle. Just 
complete opposites when it comes to style of play. And if Washington's going to win, they're going to need a dominant power play. If Carolina's going to win, they're going to need to be dominant at five on five. I'm really interested to see the clash of styles here. Who do you think's going to win? You see, like, I look at the numbers and then I watch how they play. And Washington did, I believe, win. They swept the season series. But if you look at the games that they played, they were all relatively close, I think, except for one. So it's one of those things where I think the series is probably going to go six or seven. And I think that the games are going to be tightly contested. I want to say that Carolina wins, but I don't know if their goaltending holds up. I think if their goaltending is adequate, Carolina wins. Because if you look at how each team plays, Carolina has the better playoff style in terms of the fact that they're not as high event, whereas Washington's like Corsi for, Corsi against, everything is happening. And Carolina is just significantly better in expected goals for and expected goals against. And thank God Manny put Corsica back up because I was looking there. Carolina's expected goals differential is plus 45 at 5-on-5, five five, and Washington's is minus 18. That's a huge discrepancy. They're going to live in Washington's end in that series at 5-on-5. Five five. Right, and so if Holtby doesn't turn into Holt Beast, they're going to have an issue because Carolina consistently generating scoring chances from dangerous areas. They consistently out expected goals their opponents and I honestly think that if their goaltending holds up they've got a shot here because their penalty kill is good their system is good they remind me so much of the LA Kings from 2011-2012 when they were dominant five on five but they weren't getting the wins earlier in the year and then in the second half they just went on a tear and, and piled up a bunch of wins I don't think Petr Mrazek is going to have a Jonathan Quick kind of 940 playoff run. Uh, no. But, but like you said, if he can just be league average, even slightly below league average, I think Carolina advances. They remind me a lot of San Jose in that I think they're just the perfect team at 5-on-5, five five, but I don't really trust their goaltending. So I'm not sure what to do with that in a six or seven game series. I think I lean towards the more dominant 5-on-5 five five team in a playoff series than I do towards goaltending because there's so much variance in goaltending, whereas 5-on-5 five five play tends to be pretty consistent from game to game. Well, and the one thing I noticed is Carolina consistently scores far less than their expected goals, and Washington this season is scoring more. So both teams are kind of due for a regression to the mean. And so I'll be interested to see sort of what happens there. But I think if Carolina's got a shot, they've got to find a way to deal with the power play because yes, their PK is good, but we've all seen what Ovechkin can do. And we've talked about it on this podcast. Exactly. We've talked about Washington's power play. And if they're going to have a chance at beating Washington, that power play has to be kept in check. When it comes to regression to the mean, I feel like with Carolina, if it's been a if it's been this much of a trend for the last four or five years, I am skeptical of the fact that regression is coming to the degree that I think a lot of people would naturally expect it to because we go, hey, their expected goals are this, their actual goals are this, they should be a lot closer. Whereas I'm wondering if there are some things that they're doing tactically that result in them underperforming their expected goals, whether it's shooting off the rush instead of making a pass to the slot. Instead of going for a backdoor pass, they tend to fire shots more often off the rush. Maybe they don't generate passes in the offensive zone as much as some teams. Washington has the elite shooters, the Ovechkins, the Kuznetsovs, TJ Oshie, uh, pa passers like Nicholas Backstrom and Kuznetsov in the offensive zone. I'm wondering if that's a factor. 
And I think Carolina's only shooting 7% at 5-on-5 this year. Like, But they've also been doing low. that for the last, like, four or five years, haven't they? Yeah, so I think, like, they're, they're due for regression. I'm not saying that it's coming, but I think Washington is definitely due for regression. Like, I don't think they're going to shoot 16% in the playoffs. So, speaking of regression, uh, is Martin Jones going to regress to the Martin Jones of last year and the year before? Or is he the sub-900 goalie he's been this year? Because it's super weird. I don't know what to make of it. San Jose, people don't realize how dominant they are because their goaltending has been atrocious this year. But the fact that they have atrocious goaltending and are still comfortably in a playoff spot, I think speaks to how dominant they've been this year. Yeah, I think that their issue is the fact that they've come across this voodoo named Marc-Andre Fleury. And he happens to be a very good Playoff goaltender, at least. In it's the funny past. that we can say that now, because earlier in his career, it was the opposite. Yeah, he was a mess. But when you look at what he did for Vegas, I think it'll come down to... I don't think Martin Jones has to be a superstar. I just think he needs to hold the fort. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he needs to be the 950, 945. If he can be, like, 915... San Jose probably wins that series. And you know what's crazy is that that was what he put up over the last three seasons in 60 starts every season. He was consistently a league average goalie. And then this year, he's just been absolutely terrible. I don't, again, goaltending is voodoo. I don't know how to explain this. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see if he's got something going on. Um, or maybe he's just had a mental roadblock. Like, you never know what could be going on with a goaltender. I would think that he's not as bad as this season has shown him to be. I would say, I think he's a league average goaltender, but he's also one of those goaltenders that can steal you a game. So I think as long as he can hold the fort, San Jose probably wins that series. But if he gives up a couple softies, Vegas feeds off of that. And I mean, I don't have to tell you because you can see it, but that building in Vegas is probably the most difficult to play in. It's on my bucket list of things I want to do because obviously, you know, doing a Vegas trip would be a very fun thing, but going to a Vegas Knights game would be so much fun. So that's definitely something I want to do. The crowd, the atmosphere, the entertainment during intermissions, before and after the games, it seems like a really fun thing to do. But what's crazy about Vegas is that they're almost as good at San Jose at 5-on-5. Five five. I mean, especially since adding Mark Stone at the deadline. They've been one of the most oh, dominant teams in hockey. It's just ridiculous what they've been able to do at 5-on-5. Five five. They have a decent power play. And I think Marc-Andre Goalie's the significant better goalie, at least this season. So even though I think San Jose's the better team, I don't trust Martin Jones in the playoffs. So I personally went with Vegas. And I think whichever team yep. wins this series, in my opinion, I think the winner of this series is going to go to the cup final. And again, this speaks to how broken the playoff format is because these two teams probably shouldn't be meeting in the first round, but it is what it is. What do you think of um, Bobrovsky? Do you think that he could hold the fort against Tampa? Like, do you think that that's a possibility? It's definitely a possibility. I mean, we've seen worse goaltenders have ridiculous series. I mean, we've seen Yaroslav Halak stonewall the Capitals. We've seen J.S. Shiger stonewall the Detroit Red Wings, and they didn't even get a win in that series back in, what was it, 2002? So it's, it's definitely possible. You can get goalied in a playoff series, but I still think, it's very likely that Tampa Bay wins that series. I have them winning in five, but I mean, if it goes seven, I wouldn't be shocked because hockey's a weird sport, man. Yeah. And then I think the other series that maybe we should touch on is St. Louis Winnipeg because one team was last in the league in January has been one of the best teams since. And then the other team has kind of been 
going down the slippery slope lately, and now they're meeting. So the weird thing about Winnipeg is that they've been injured a lot this year. You know, when they're missing one of Bufflin or Morrissey, they've been a disaster because then they don't have a second or third defense pairing. Looks like in the playoffs, Bufflin's healthy, and it looks like Morrissey's going to be healthy in time. So if they're both healthy, that gives me a bit more confidence in Winnipeg. I think Dom Lushishin actually had them as the favorites. I don't see it personally, just because if you have Ben Sherratt playing big minutes, if Dmitry Kulikov plays instead of, who's that defenseman that they just acquired at the deadline? Beaulieu. Yeah, Beaulieu. I think Beaulieu should be in the lineup, but I'm worried that Kulikov will be in the lineup. We'll see what happens there. But when Sherratt's on the ice and when Kulikov's on the ice, they've been getting crushed at 5-5 five and five this year. Their shot metrics have been terrible at 5-5. Five and five. For such a talented team, it's kind of ridiculous how poorly they've played this year. I mean, they've been getting a lot of shooting percentage, and they've been getting uh, some good goaltending, and they have a ridiculous power play, and those are definitely good things. But again, I don't trust them at 5-on-5, five and, five, and since getting rid of their coach and bringing in Barube, St. Louis has been completely unstoppable at 5-on-5. Five five. Ryan O'Reilly ha- is having a Selkie-worthy season, and if Bennington is for real, I like St. Louis's chances in this series. I've got them winning in seven. Oh, see, like, I, I think that that series goes six or seven. I think if healthy, Winnipeg wins because I just think they're too deep. And like Vegas, Winnipeg is a really difficult building to play in in the playoffs. It's like it turns into a different building. I mean, it's incredible how loud that place can be. And yes, Jordan Bennington has been nothing short of incredible. And I think had it not been for Elias Pettersson, he probably is your Calder winner. Um... But the playoffs are a completely different animal, and until he shows me that he has the mental wherewithal to not collapse in the playoffs, my slight edge still goes to Winnipeg. And I think Dom and I might be the only two people that think that way, but I think that Winnipeg has the star power. I think getting healthy will be very good for them. Um, And so, for me, until Bennington shows me that you can stop the puck in the playoffs and not collapse under pressure because we've seen goalies collapse under pressure. I mean, Andre Vasilevsky last year said, I got tired. And it wouldn't shock me if that happened to Bennington. I don't want it to happen to him, but I think that that's something you definitely have to account for. But either way, I think that series goes six or seven, and I think a few of those games go to overtime too. Do you have any quick thoughts on Penguins-Islanders out of curiosity? Um, I think that that series probably ends 4-2. Which team is definitely up for debate. But for whatever reason, I just get the sense that it's a 4-2 series. It really all depends on Robin Lehner. See, yeah, I just don't think the Islanders are very good. I just, at 5-on-5, five five, man, they get destroyed in shots. and the Penguins I know, but have... they're so structured, and that's the issue. Is They might not be good, but they've held the fort for the year, and they're just so disciplined. Like, it's just... It's hard to bet against a system that plays as well as Barry Trotz's does and the fact that they're executing it the, the way they are. And don't forget, the Penguins have had their share of goaltending troubles this year as well. That's fair. But at the same time, I feel like in the playoffs, if you're going to take a bet on a team that's been on a PDO bender all year, that tends not to be the, the best money when it comes to making smart bets in the playoffs. So I, I, I just, also don't think it's very shrewd to bet against Sydney Crosby in the playoffs. That's that doesn't seem to uh, 
to work out very well. How about betting against Phil Kessel in a Pittsburgh uniform in the playoffs? He's he's just been playoff Jesus since going there. Yeah, what is he? Two cups and one not cup. Jesus. Yep. And uh, Con Smythe that he didn't win for some reason. Uh, it's another conversation for another day. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do the mailbag. All righty. What are your thoughts on the Quenville hiring? Because I woke up to that and went, wow, the Atlantic Division just got interesting. I was not expecting him to go to Florida. That was not a destination I even thought of of for him. I thought that maybe Edmonton could be an interesting one. I thought he might want to go to a team that was either more well-established in terms of a contender or with some elite young talent. Florida just wasn't a team I was expecting because it seemed to me like they wouldn't be able to afford him. I knew he was going to command a high a high salary. There was talk about the fact that he might be trying to get as much, if not more, than Mike Babcock. So for a team that's never really been a, a salary cap team, I just assumed that he'd be out of the question for them. But bringing him in, I think, is huge. I mean, even though he has some biases that I think hold him back sometimes, much like a Mike Babcock, I think sometimes he plays guys like Brent Seabrook too much and didn't give younger players like Eric Gustafson or Michael Kepney enough rope. But I think he's a phenomenal coach when it comes to systems, when it comes to getting the most out of his team at five on five. And if they can have a huge offseason here, it sounds like they're going to go, they're going to swing big and go after Bobrovsky and Panarin. If they can move Luongo onto LTIR to make the contracts work in that regard, I think this could be a quick turnaround for Florida. And I wasn't expecting to say that, but I mean, you bring in an elite coach, you bring in an elite talent in Panarin and an elite goalie in uh, Bobrovsky, even though in the long run, I think that signing a goalie in his 30s is going to crush you on the back half of that contract. I think over the next couple of years, this could be a very interesting and quick turnaround for Florida. Well, what's interesting is so Dale Talon's there, right? So you have that connection. Now, I personally think Sasha Barkov is a better hockey player than Jonathan Taves. Um, I don't think it's close right now. Yeah, so when you already have that, and then you're looking at bringing in a player like Artemi Panarin, who, by all accounts, loved playing for Quenville. Well, there's sort of your Patrick Kane, but when you look at it, I think that Florida's got some young talent. I would not be shocked to see Mike Hoffman moved. Um, even a Jonathan Huberto, to be quite honest, because I think they could get, no, not because (laughs) of that. Um, but I think he could potentially be moved just to sort of shake the core a little bit, because I think Barkoff and Borgstrom are sort of the pieces there. And I also think that he's going to do wonders with guys like Trocek and Aaron Ekblad. Like, I think he'll be great for the group of players that they have and could potentially have. And it's no secret that Panarin basically wants to go to Florida or the Rangers, like either Tampa or the Panthers. He wants to go to a big city and or a beach. Exactly. Well, Tampa doesn't have room for him, so you can nix that off the list. The Rangers are interesting, um, but I think now that Q and Talon are in, I think that's probably... Gotta be the one of the betting favorites, no? I I think realistically for Bobrovsky and Panera, I mean, they, we've heard whispers about Bobrovsky all season going to Florida. And then the fact that him and Panarin are good friends, the Panarin-Quenville connection. Again, this might be one of the worst kept secrets in the NHL. We'll see if things change by the summer, but it, it sounds like this is what's going to happen. When it comes to Huberdeau, he has 92 points this year. I, I just... 
I don't think there's any trade where you move him and you get fair value back. I, I'm, I'm huge on Huber Bowe's value. He's 25 years old. He's on a good contract. Unless you're getting like a, a first-pairing quality kind of defenseman for him, I, I'm not sure if I'd be comfortable trading a player of his talent. Yeah, I don't know that they're going to do that, but I think Mike Hoffman definitely gets moved. That is, I just, I think he's too one-dimensional for Q. Um, Joel Quenville likes to play a certain type of hockey, and I don't think Hoffman quite fits that. Well, I don't think Patrick Kane fit a a 200-foot game, but he found a way to make that work. (laughs) Yeah, but Patrick Kane's also a superstar. I would not have Mike Hoffman in the same conversation as Patrick Kane. That's a very fair point. Right, so it's that's a completely different thing. I also think that there will be some player movement on Florida's end, and if they want to look to sort of restart, not necessarily restart, but they want to clear the way and make this Panarin and Barkov's team, then I think that perhaps Huberto is the body that goes, although I think that's a lot less likely than Hoffman. Like, I think Hoffman's probably all but gone because he's just too one-dimensional to play the role that Quentinville will need him to play. Also, he's going to be a free agent at the end of next season. Exactly. So that's definitely something to remember. The fact that it's not like Huberto, who's locked up for this season and then four more, that's a much more valuable asset. Whereas Hoffman, you might be thinking the fact that you're going to move on from him anyways in a year. So why not try to recoup some assets on him right now? Exactly. So, I mean, that's our thoughts on Quenville. I'm excited because now you've got some high quality coaches in the Atlantic division. You've got Chloe Julian, you've got Joel Quenville, you've got John Cooper, you've got Mike Babcock, you've got Butch Cassidy. Like, though, none of those guys are slouches. You just call him Butch all. Cassidy? Yes, I did call him Butch <laughs> Cassidy. Um, so I think that as far as coaching in the Atlantic goes, it's a, it's definitely the deep blue sea. There are sharks in the water, and you're going to have to measure up if you want your team to survive because you will not do it just on star power. All right, let's go one more mailbag question before we get out of here. All righty, what is the best way for someone to better learn or understand fancy stats and get better at watching the game from an analytical perspective? Okay. I was going to say, I feel like I I didn't know anything a few years ago, and then I slowly started picking up on some things and then got a lot smarter a few years after that. But it's funny, uh, when the David Clarkson signing first happened, I was a fan of it, and I thought that... Corsi was an acronym and there were a lot of things I didn't understand a few years ago and I've slowly picked up on so I guess it depends on what your level of understanding with this kind of stuff is I'd recommend reading a guide by anyone there's some stuff at the athletic I've written one in the past about just a stat shot yeah stat shot or even just something on reddit that you can find like a casual fans guide to advanced stats you can find out that Corsi all that really means is shots that's literally all it means is that a shot on on goal even if it misses that's a shot that we're going to give your team credit for and if you get more of those than the other team it means that you're in the offensive end generating pucks towards the net more than the other team and that's a good thing you want to be on offense more than you're on defense that's a very simple concept you'd be surprised at how powerful it is when it comes to predicting future success so I'd recommend reading guides when it comes to that. I'd recommend getting on Twitter. I learned a lot from people like Ryan Stimson. I learned a lot from people like Manny, Micah Blake McCurdy. Uh, Don't tell me about Hart before he got hired by Colorado. I feel like you can learn from a lot of some of the smarter people on Twitter. And as much as people say that it's a cesspool, I feel like if you're polite to people, you can get some interesting discourse that helps you learn more about the game. Again, if you're mean and swearing and doing crazy things, then yeah. 
it's not going to be a great place. But if you're polite to people, like someone like Sean Tierney, for example, or Matt Cain on Twitter, I find that can be a great place. You know, you get out of it what you put into it. If, if you go in swearing and screaming, that's what you're going to get out of it. If you go in being polite and looking to learn things, that's what you're going to get out of it. So I definitely recommend that. And then some of the really cool stuff, my favorite stuff right now, is like the zone entry and zone exit stuff, the passing data. So I'd recommend looking into that. I know CJ Tutoro has some awesome visuals on it. So I'd recommend his Tableau, which... Yeah, his is super easy to understand. Yeah, so he's CJTDevil on Twitter. So at CJTDevil, his Tableau will be linked there at the top. It'll be on the side. Go click on his Tableau and look at some of his tools because it's really interesting looking at the fact that some of the defensemen that you think uh, are, oh, wow, this guy's a really good puck mover. And then, yep, that's backed up by the numbers. Morgan Riley is, in fact, a phenomenal puck mover. And you ask yourself, you're like, man, the kid's Zaitsev. I get frustrated when I watch him. He's not moving the puck very well. It's borne out in the numbers, too. He's not a very good puck mover. So these things have a lot of value. It's really interesting. So if you're just getting started, I recommend reading a guide, hopping on Twitter, and learning more. If you want to get into the, the real nitty-gritty, you know, Hockey Graphs is a great place and... And maybe start doing some of your own research if, if you're really into it. I mean, I didn't learn a lot about hockey until I started to, to try building my own war model. And I realized how hard it was. And I realized, oh, wow, this part of the game is really underrated. I didn't realize how complicated that would be. Or, wow, penalty differential, that's a thing. Or, wow, shooting talent. Man, this Austin Matthews guy is pretty good at hockey. So it's interesting. You learn little things as you try to do more with the data. So play around with stuff in Excel. I sucked at it when I first started. And then I got a lot better at it as time moved on. So, you know, you got to start somewhere. Yeah, and I would I would echo that. Um, I would say that you're better off learning the analytical side of things than you are trying to tactically watch the game. I think the most true piece of advice or tidbit I ever got was before I even started in hockey, and it was, if you learn to watch the game like a coach, hockey will be ruined for you forever. And that's because once you know how to watch it like a coach, you do not have the ability to turn your brain off and just enjoy the game. So I found... There are no positive aspects. There are only mistakes. Exactly. (laughs) And it's one of those things where I'm like, I can't even enjoy a game anymore as a fan because I'm consistently analyzing. I can't turn my brain off. And my dad will be like, wow, did you see that play by Marner? I'm like, no, the back checker on Florida, where was he? There was so much space off the rush. That was terrible. Exactly. (laughs) And you're looking at just different things. So... You wouldn't watch the game from an analytical perspective. You would understand the game from an analytical perspective. So like Ian said, you want to hop on Twitter and and read some of the things. Like Dom is a great follow. Um, Dom Lucician, great follow. Yeah. Uh, CJ's stuff is great. Corey Schneider's stuff is is brilliant. Um, he's, he's the god of like manual tracking right now. Exactly. And then if you really want to be able to understand how things work and you're a visual learner... Sean Tierney, who's at Charting Hockey on Twitter, has, I personally think, the best viz going right now. It's in terms of being able to understand it. Because I was able to show it to my friend, who didn't know what offside was two years ago, and she completely understood it. So, when you look at things like that, then once you understand that, you can start getting into the nitty-gritty of Micah, Blake McCurdy stuff, of Evolving Wild stuff. Matt Kane's got some great salary cap projections, but I think charting hockey and CJ's viz is top of the line viz as far as being able to understand it. And it will help you kind of 
arrive at your own conclusions as to what teams are trending the right way and the wrong way because it's just very easy to understand. And then when I first got into this kind of stuff, I loved writers who blended the numbers with the video. I, I helped that I, I'm a visual learner, so it helps me getting to see stuff both on the ice in a chart. I'm not a huge words guy, and it's funny because now I'm being paid to write, but you'll notice that in my writing, I try not to use as many words, and I use a lot of charts. I use a lot of videos because I feel like that helps me as a learner, so I try to do that. And That's what Harman I did. Dial. That's completely what yeah, I did. That, yeah, your video coach, right? Exactly. So, Harman Dial in Vancouver is one of my favorites. Sean Tierney was one of my favorites before he started working for a team and isn't doing as much public work now. Do you have any favorites right now when it comes to writers who are doing a great job of bridging the gap? Um, I would say that I like the stuff that you do. Um, Jack Han was great at it. Uh, again, these great people get Toronto hired, stole it. him. Um, but yeah, I would say Harm Dial is is very good. Um, for anyone that's interested, I probably will start writing again. Um, but to be quite honest, I think that there's so many people out there that you'll be able to make your own conclusions and. It all depends on how you learn. Like, if you're not a visual learner, then writers like myself and Ian and Haram will not help you. However, if you're kind of good by doing things and making your own conclusions, then somebody like Sean Tierney's charts or Micah's charts will help you because you'll be able to look at them and draw your own conclusions. So you're kind of self-teaching yourself. Uh, so I got one last piece of advice. If you were really um, well-versed in another sport, whether it's basketball or baseball, I'd suggest diving into the analytics of that sport because I feel like it'll help, and then you can bring some concepts over from that sport. I feel like cross-sport references is something that really helps me in my understanding of the game. My favorite thing ever. Like when I'm thinking about spacing in the NBA, and then I bring that same topic to the NHL, and it's like, wow, look at the spacing on... Tampa Bay's power play. It really contorts the defense. Or if I'm thinking about baseball and how difficult it is to quantify defensive value, that's something we're having a bit of trouble with hockey right now. So it's always interesting comparing sports and seeing where some are stronger, where some are weaker, and maybe tactically where some of them are, are very similar. But if you're really well-versed in another sport and you follow basketball, like all 82 games, you're going to watch every game of the Raptors playoffs – Get into the analytics. Read a lot of Zach Lowe. You know, he's one of the best writers out there. If you're a big baseball fan, go to Fangraphs and, and read Jeff Sullivan and Dave Cameron. If you're a soccer fan, I'm not sure if you have any uh, favorites out there. I'm a big fan of uh, Mike Goodman. Yep, he's really good. Um, there's It's more websites, so you can go to OptiPro, American Soccer Analysis. There's a bunch of writers on there that do terrific work. And, I mean, soccer is sort of my passion sport, I would say, and... I like to bring a lot of ideas from soccer over and vice versa when I'm talking to soccer teams as well. I'll bring hockey ideas over just because I think that they're pretty similar in the fact that it's a flow game. Yeah, so that's that's my suggestion is that if you have a passion, like if it's not only hockey, if basketball is your passion, hey, learn more about basketball and learn more about maybe the numbers side of things because you'll be surprised at how many parallels there are, especially now that player tracking is going to be coming to hockey soon. That's going to be something that's really going to impact the way that we go about evaluating players in the future. So I think that's the future of things. I think that's why zone entry numbers and zone exits and passing data is something that a lot of people in the analytics community are really high on right now because it's kind of the future. You know, We don't have big da data sets of it right now. We have literally one dude, Corey Schneider, who's like tracking all of it. But when we have some more of this stuff publicly available, I think it's going to lead to a pretty big revolution when it comes to player analysis. Exactly. And I think that the influx of data will allow for 
at least more tracking. I mean, it won't all be public, but there will definitely be more available, I would say. And here's hoping we can figure out this goddamn goaltending thing because, ugh, it's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> goaltending is voodoo. I was a goaltender, and that's how you know I don't understand it because I was very bad. <laughs> that's amazing. All righty, we'll get out of here now. Uh, Rachel, got any, uh, any plans this week? Anything major on the go? Um, other than getting better, I am going to sit on the couch and watch the playoffs. Sounds great. Sounds Justin Bourne had an awesome tweet about how someone gave him uh, uh, the ideas that like when you're getting up there in age and like you need to have a vasectomy that it's suggested that you have to lie on the couch for a week and get bed rest. So he's like, okay, I'm not sure when I'm doing this, but when I do, I'm doing it literally the day before the playoffs. So I just get to watch like a week straight of first round matchups because it's so much fun. Well, and the other thing is it's the Masters this week. And so I will be firmly planted on the couch watching that because golf is huge in my family too so when you have the opening round of the playoffs and the masters on you're basically not getting me up from the couch see i'm more of an nba playoffs kind of guy i'll be watching every second of that houston rockets oklahoma city thunder first round matchup but you know to each his own we'll we'll, we'll each enjoy our time in front of the tv this week oh for sure and uh we'll chat soon Sounds good. And for anyone who didn't get a chance, we were on stage with uh, Dom Lucision. It was Staff and Graf and Sass with Andy Petrillo last week at, uh, where were we, the rec room? It was a lot of fun. So if yeah. you had a chance to make it out, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we get to do something like that again sometime soon. That was that was really cool. Yeah, we'll do it live. We'll do it live. F it, we'll do it live. <laughs> That's still one of my favorite things ever. Such a great thing. But anyways, uh, it was a lot of fun this week, and we'll be back next week with a brand new topic. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graph. <laughs>